Welcome to Lonely Cello. Welcome to Lonely Cello. I'm your host, Emily Wright, and I am here with Noah Kageyama. Unbelievable. The people I have roped into talking to me. <laughs> I've been like anxious and excited for like the past couple days because you're such a source of so much of what is important and also interesting in my work and the lives of the people that I work with. So um, just thank you for taking some time to chat with us. I think this is going to be off the hook. <laughs> People are going to really love sure. this. Thanks for having me. Um, so if you recognize that name, you might uh, associate him with, what do we call it like a blog, just the website Bulletproof Musician? Because it's all kinds of things, right? How should I refer to it? Honestly, I'm not even sure myself because... I was trying to figure out how to describe what it is. And it's it's a blog. That's how it started out. I don't even know if people call them those anymore. But then, you know, eventually started offering online courses kind of based off of the courses I was already teaching. And then a few years ago, started a podcast and someday maybe a YouTube channel. You know, so I don't even know nowadays what people call these things. The entity related to all things Bulletproof Musician. Um so yeah, I guess for, for people who actually really don't know, kind of what do you talk about over there? So I started playing the violin when I was two and went through the whole normal sort of sequence of Suzuki and youth orchestra and chamber music and lessons and competitions and summer festivals and all that stuff that you know a lot of young musicians go through. And throughout all of that, I had nerves like everybody else and I had good days and bad days on stage. And I really didn't understand why. Um, I mean, you know, my teachers would tell me that practicing was kind of a good thing and maybe I would be a little more consistent if I did a little bit more of that. But but even if I did practice, sometimes I'd still get really nervous. And then even if I got really nervous, sometimes I'd play great. And then sometimes I'd be nervous and I'd play terribly. And then sometimes I'd be calm and I'd play terribly. And then other times I'd be calm and play really great. And and even with practicing, sometimes I'd practice more and sound better. Other times I'd practice more and sound worse. And then there are times where I'd, you know, take a weekend off and I'd sound great on Monday. So, you know, none of it really made sense to me. And I just kind of muddled through and did my best. And uh, eventually, you know, the frustration kind of got to a point where I didn't really know what to do. Like I knew I needed to do something, but I didn't know what that was. And it so happened to be um, in grad school at Juilliard at the time and came across um, this fellow named Don Green, who was teaching a class on sports psychology. And, you know, this is the, what was it, late 90s? And I hadn't heard of sports psychology before and was just really curious about it and took the class and discovered that it was quite transformative, both in my practice and my preparation and my performance experience. And so when I was done with school, I wasn't really sure what to do anyway with my life. And so I figured I'd stay in school for even longer and went to get my master's and PhD in psychology um, to learn more about this sort of thing. And um, as I finished up school, I wasn't really sure how to be helpful to anybody. It's not like anyone on the you know, internet, such as it was, knew that I was doing this or studying this or interested in helping people with this. And 
so the advice that I got was, you know, to start a website or start a blog and, um, and then start writing about it. And so part of it was to see if I could find people that I could be helpful to. But part of it was also, you know, it's done with school at that point, but it's not like I learned everything in school. Like I learned a lot of things, but not necessarily a lot of the stuff related to performance psychology or performance psychology for musicians specifically. And so part of it honestly was just a way to force myself to keep reading and then to try to take the things that were in the research and find a way to make them actionable. Cause that was the thing that always sort of, you know, bugged me about research. It's like, it's amazing stuff and they're finding all these cool things, but it's not like the end the paper saying, okay, now if you're a musician, do X, Y, and Z. Like they, they leave it there for you to figure out how to take care of it on your own. And so I thought it would be, um, I mean, if it were me out there reading, I would want someone to tell me, okay, don't give me every detail, just tell me what to do. And so that's how the blog ended up getting started. I feel like um, school is almost like you download the code. And then once you're done with school, then you start using the code, right? It's not like it's like the end. It's it's definitely not the terminal point. Um, also though, I just want everybody to just remember, he said, sometimes I practiced and I sound worse. Sometimes I was calm and it was great. Or other times it was a catastrophe. This is a universal experience to people who are earnest about music. Um, and I, I think every student who goes through something like this, they come to me positive that, that they are the only person who has ever done everything right and then had it explode in their face. And it's like, no, no, actually, maybe that might be the only universal thing in music is that like, wow, uh, how do we even do this? Right. Um, also, uh, you kind of said, yeah, I did this and typical and Suzuki, but you didn't just do Suzuki. You studied with the master. Can you just, just, we're going to get back to music psychology really quickly, but um, what was it like kind of studying in that environment with the man? You know, it's funny because when you're five, it's hard to know if the memories that you have are like real memories or like the sort <laughs> right. of like made up memories, but, but yeah. So, I mean, this all came about because um, my cousins were one of the first um, sets of uh, guinea pigs, as it were, mm. uh, with the Suzuki program at Ithaca College. And so, you know, my mom and her sister are really close. And so one summer she was like, well, why don't we go up there? Because apparently I said when I was like a year and a half or something, um, you know, there's music playing. You know, my parents weren't musicians themselves, but I think when they moved into this apartment after getting married, one of the very first things they bought, even before a couch and a dinner table, uh, was like a stereo. A hi-fi. music, right. <laughs> right. Um, you know, and then the next month when they had some more money, uh, you know, their friends down the street were, it's like, oh, now they're getting a, a table where you can sit and play cards or something. But no, it's actually an upright piano. <laughs> so, you know, eventually they did get a dinner table and all that. But all this to say, they were just very... Um, um, into music um, and listening to it and so forth. And so there was always music playing when I was growing up. And apparently when I was really young, I, I would say things like, Oa Waik Mugas. And, you know, as a little kid, they weren't sure what that meant. But then one day they were at a you know, friend's house and I was running around and they had music playing. I said, nice Mugas. And so they figured <laughs> out that I was saying Noah likes music. And so, you know, my cousins were doing this thing think we had no plans for that summer so my mom was like well let's go to Ithaca and, and see if you can start Suzuki 
And, you know, that's a great plan, but I was like two and a half. And I don't know if starting Suzuki when you're two and a half was super common back then. So, you know, they let me hold that Cracker Jack box with a ruler taped to it and, you know, little dowel rod and so forth and taught me how to bow and hold and all that other things. And so, yeah, that first summer, I think all I learned how to do was bow to the D major chord. I think it still is. So my mom calls it the thousand dollar bow. And, uh, but you know, my mom isn't one to get discouraged very easily. So she was reading Dr. Suzuki's book and just completely inspired by this man's philosophy and what he had done and what he was doing. And really sort of in her mind, uh, I think this is how she described it. She saw him as being sort of a, you know, historical figure on the level of like Mozart or Beethoven or something like that. And I, I think she was... had some vision there. <laughs> and and he was already pretty old at the time. I, I'd have to do the math, but she was like, well, you know, if this person is alive during my son's lifetime, like I need to find a way to get him to be able to study with this person. And so uh, I'm not sure how she did this, you know, cause this is back in the seventies, but she found his phone number. Um, she, found his mailing address, like wrote him letters, called him at various points and eventually got him to like verbally agree to, to teach me if we showed up at his doorstep. And so, so I remember leaving kindergarten midway through the year and, and, you know, Christmas break, it's like, you go home and, but this felt different. It's like, this seemed more like an actual goodbye. I was a little bit confused, but turns out we were heading over to Japan to spend, you know, six months there and studying oh. with Dr. Suzuki. So, so yeah, I remember going there. I think the, the first thing I played was La Folia because I, I'd been working on that for a long time. Um, and, uh, you know, and then I pr proceeded to work on it even more. I thought I was done with it, but he wanted to um, work on it in his way for a few more months. And so, you know, I, I learned a lot of things, some of which do stick with me. I mean, mostly I just remember how, you know, I don't know how old he was. He must have been he had to have been in his seventies, um, mm. maybe eighties, but he was like a little kid. And I think that's kind of how people describe him. I mean, he was just so energetic. Um, you know, he'd get down on the, like, I was so, you know, I was like five years old. So I'm not very tall. Like he would get down on his knees wearing a suit and like not play with me, but like engage with me on that level. Um, I once accidentally was, you know, I hit him in the back with a paper airplane in the hallway. Cause I was, you know, <laughs> was five. And my mom was mortified, but, you know, he just kind of laughed and picked it up and like threw it back at me. And so, so yeah, I, it didn't feel at all intimidating or, you know, like you would expect an older gentleman to be. I mean, he's very much kind of like a kid and engaged with everybody in that sort of way and tried to you know, play games and use metaphors for me when I didn't seem to understand what he was getting at. So I think there are actually... There, there are some people in the middle of the road, but in my experience, I have met um, high profile string instructors and they are either these kind of terrifying, imperious. I mean, that's actually one of the ways I learned to deal with stage fright was just being like in a master class with somebody who, you know, whose name I'd known for, you know, my whole life and just like learning to keep my myself together while I was on the stage with this person. And then there's this other school where there's this kind of joy and camaraderie. And I think of like Master Suzuki. And I also think of like Lynn Harrell very much like that. You know, he could be serious, but he was always like ready to laugh and be with you as a, as a student, as opposed to above you. Um, but yeah, um, one of the things I, 
I'm not going to wade into this too much, but the only thing that I actually got um, fired up about, I feel like, was it Mark O'Connor, like came for Suzuki a couple years ago? Mm -hmm. He just like went on the warpath. Maybe I didn't even... I didn't even want to wade into it because that's above my pay grade. But the thing that made me so sad is that he missed entirely the joy <laughs> that like Suzuki himself and so many Suzuki teachers like offer kids um, because it is a contrast to the very like old school. We want to say like German or Russian, but that kind of just hardcore school of joyless, frightening playing as a kid so anyway i just love that this is just like this you are my my only connection with him <laughs> in that way and that's just so cool so back to um kind of getting into performance psychology so you first um you first kind of got into it as sports psychology what carries over kind of what are the where are the places where we have an overlap and like where does music sort of have to have its own vein of practice and research honestly it's you know actually the so apa is the american psychological association and i don't remember exactly when this happened but it you know every little area of psychology has its own division right mm -hmm. so there's you know developmental psychology and cognitive psychology and clinical psychology and like and um sports psychology is division 47 and uh it used to be called i believe something like you know division of sports psychology but now it's called uh, this will be maybe inexact i forget the order exactly but it, it's it's something like division of sport exercise and performance psychology so um they did work to bring performance psychology into the name to broaden it because it's been decades where um, sports psychologists have worked with musicians and non-athletes. You know, there are folks who specialize in working with Wall Street traders and yeah, you know, power so brokers, right? And so this has been going on for so long that you know, I think increasingly more people are referring to sports psychology as performance psychology and, and are being understood as far as what that means. Um, you know, to me, I've always seen it as being the same thing. And yes, it's it's awesome that there are now, you know, especially in the last ten plus years or so, increasing numbers of. Um, musicians who are doing research on aspects of performance. Um, you know, there are some who've been doing it for decades, you know, several decades, but um, I think it's becoming much more um, common to see folks in music pedagogy, for instance, doing research on, you know, the mental side of performance and so forth. So it's, it's awesome because they're going to be able to conduct the studies that ask and answer the specific questions that I think music, musicians are most curious about and run into and struggle with. But um, but I also have always been one to really like cross-training. Like mm -hmm. I've always enjoyed looking at research in other areas and seeing what the overlap is and how it could be translated. And even with, you know, sports and training in different ways across domains, disciplines as a way to just reading a thing this morning about how Steve Kerr, the coach of the Golden um, State Warriors, was wanting to talk to Kyle Shanahan, the head coach of the San Francisco 49ers in terms of, you know, how do they make, um, how do they teach their players to be able to think so simply about what's going on, but create this complex offense that is incredibly confusing for the defense. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, you could see them talking at some point about how to teach their players more effectively to run these plays and, and conceptualize the plays without getting too confused and so forth. 
so yeah so i i mean i've always historically loved the sort of overlap so so i you know actually i love that there's more music specific research but i also still enjoy taking research that wasn't intended for musicians and seeing if there could be some way of applying it sometimes i actually like that even better it's kind of like i i prefer the inner game of tennis to the inner game of music because they're making their point without trying to sell it directly to musicians. And I find that much more convincing actually, because then we, I can draw those conclusions myself. Um, and also just another thing for listeners to just take heart in is that if you think about professional athletes working at the highest level, which the I mean, Golden State Warriors for so long, they were so bad. And now look at them destroying the NBA Um, and you know, hockey players, you know, everybody knows I follow hockey really closely. So these people are the top of the top of the top and they have multiple coaches throughout the game, reminding them of the fundamentals. That is the human experience. So there's nothing wrong with you for needing to consistently come back to the fundamentals, to reconsider your approach, to be available to change things. I'm constantly, I'm not going to say changing, but I'm open to altering or having a different understanding of my approach. Um, So as most of our listeners are adult learners, I just kind of want to continuously make them feel like they're, they're in the fold. You are not unusual because you need to continue learning or keep going back to the fundamentals. It's kind of what you do. Um, So looking at kind of the largest picture possible? What are some of the overarching ideas that kind of keep coming to the surface over and over again in terms of kind of successful practices or like common mistakes that well-intended students or performers make? And these two things are overlapping, but the two things that I feel like I end up talking about most or working on most with musicians at any level um, are practicing effectively and attention control, as in what exactly should we be thinking about or focusing on when we're performing? Um, Because I think when you talk to a musician and ask them, what were you thinking about, you know, during that performance, if they had a bad day, then, you know, they'll tell you, it's like, oh, I was worried about this. And then I was thinking about that thing that happened. And then I was worried about the shift that was coming up. And I thought about the audience and if they noticed it or if the people behind the screen and the audition, you know, caught that thing or (laughs) did I hear somebody say thank you already? Or like, you know, they they can tell you exactly all these sort of non-helpful things and the inner critic is getting involved and loud in your head, so forth. And on a good day, they'll often say something like, I wasn't thinking about anything or I was just thinking about the music. And that is true, but it's not super helpful because it's so abstract as to be difficult for us to know, well, how do I just think about nothing then? Or how do I just think about the music? Like what exactly? And so it takes a little bit of pushing to, to get them to kind of be introspective and try to figure out what was going on because a lot of times it just happens sort of naturally. And I think even your listeners, no matter what level they may be at, we've all had, I think those accidental good days where if we think about it, it's like, yeah, I wasn't really thinking about anything where I was just in the music. and But it's hard to know what that means or what that really was. And so uh, it turns out there are concrete things that we can think about that help us kind of get into the zone in that way more consistently. Um, and with practicing as well, you know, I think we, so this is the thing that I find most fascinating about the research on learning. Turns out we are not very good at gauging whether the thing that we're doing right now is leading to effective learning or not. 
So whether it's studying for a math test or, um, uh, you know, working on a new piece for your lesson, the only way that we can gauge for real whether what we've just done in the last half an hour, an hour today while studying or practicing represents effective learning or not is to wait until tomorrow and then test ourselves. But, you know, we don't tend to operate on that sort of time scale, right? Like we just study and we reread our notes and read the notes some more and um, you know, look at our flashcards. And, and then we go to the test tomorrow and it's like, oh crap, like I, I knew this stuff last night, like it was totally there, but I can't retrieve it now. And similarly, you know, work on a difficult passage or work on a piece, play it over and over and, you know, third, fourth time through, it's sounding pretty good. It's like, yeah, I'm ready for my lesson. And then we show up at our lesson after school or whatever and haven't touched the instrument all day and then try to play. It's like, oh crap. No, like I swear it sounded better at home. Like it sounded good last night. And I'm sure, you know, everyone has had that experience or as teachers, we've had students tell us that. And so, so part of it is, yeah, like this sort of repetition after repetition, um, without actually trying to identify what the problems are and what the solutions are, lends itself to the very convincing appearance of rapid improvement, but doesn't actually result in a long-term retention or the ability to retrieve those skills. And so that's one thing that I think is not something that we generally figure out intuitively um, very quickly. And it takes a while to get to the point where we start to realize, oh, this didn't help. Whereas this thing that maybe didn't feel like it was helping in the moment, or it was a kind of more like pulling teeth that was more effortful and felt like I was, you know, getting through my repertoire more slowly, but, but I sound better the next day. That's kind of weird. Yeah. My, um, my working theory that I did not invent, I have absolutely stolen this for, from other people. Um, but it's that you have to, in your practice, expose yourself to the actual adversity which is sometimes it is what is hard on the page, but also if you know yourself, like I know that, you know what, I'm just not as good as at extensions. It's just, I would rather, I would, I do Byzantine fingerings to avoid an extension, but if I have to do one, being aware that it's difficult for me and kind of working through the thing that is difficult physically, I feel like that tends to lead to better results, but the practice has a very different feel to it. Very rarely do I feel like, yeah, man, that was, that sounds polished, but the next day it doesn't feel like as much of a struggle bus to get the extension in tune. Would you say that that's kind of one of the components of the kind of one of the changes in, in mindset in practice that is useful, or does that seem sort of just anecdotal? No, certainly. I think anticipating what's going to be difficult for you on stage and not trying to make things easier for yourself in practice, but trying to make things more challenging so that you're prepared for what's inevitably inevitably going to happen in performance. Um, what are what would you say some of the mistakes, the more common mistakes that people who are most of, most of my listeners are actually like really serious about it. Even if they're one year in, they have very high goals. They're kind of people who have done incredible things with their lives. Like we've got fighter pilots and neurosurgeons, right? It's like, like, are any of you people casual? And they're like, no, <laughs> I'm going to do everything at this like heightened level. And they picked a really challenging thing. Um, but at the same time, 
um, because this doesn't music doesn't like ascribe to the same learning patterns as some of the their previous things. Um, although flying lessons, there's actually a lot of correlation there. Um, but I'm just curious. Like I find these people who are incredibly intelligent and open to all kinds of instructions still making still wasting a lot of time in their practice or having very scattershot results. So I'm curious, you know, maybe if they didn't hear it from me, <laughs> what would you say are some of the common mistakes of like well-intentioned students in their practice? Well, it's interesting because if you have somebody who is already performing at a high level in some other domain, they're probably doing these things already, but they just don't recognize that they're doing them. And it can sometimes be hard to apply them to music because it feels mm. like a completely different thing. And, and sometimes also, honestly, this may not fit your student profile, but sometimes it's nice to just enjoy learning something in a not super organized timeline-based way. Um, because yeah, see if how you're it already, goes. Yeah, because if you're doing that in some other part of your life and you're trying to be as effective and as efficient and as productive as possible, that takes some energy. And it may be that if you're, you know, picking up tennis or the cello or you know, something like that, like that taking that same approach may suck all the joy and fun out of the like the leisure activity that you're engaged in. So 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 I don't want to say that everybody should try to maximize performance um, or practice efficiency because sometimes that isn't the answer. But um, I think the avoidance of recording is one opportunity um, to get in there and vastly increase the effectiveness of, of practice. Um, because a lot of thing, a lot of times I think we just jump in and it's sort of like, going to the grocery store and shopping without a, a recipe or a list like we just whatever kind of strikes our fancy at first it's like oh let's work on that that didn't sound good and the, so it's not really super organized in terms of like the priority of things that need the most work and so usually what happens is people will say yeah I'll record myself but like when it's ready but ready is usually too late um, and not soon enough and so as soon as possible, I, I like to get people recording themselves, even if it's not complete, if it, even if it's just like the first line or the first page or the last page for that matter, just to get a sense of like, well, well, if this were a performance, where are the biggest little speed bumps and, and issues that pop up? And it's hard to expose those things when you're just playing it a bunch of times through because you don't really notice. And when you end, everything seems pretty smooth and sounds pretty good. And so you feel pretty good. So, so with recording too, and this is not fun for anybody, but the idea is to actually record yourself first, right? Don't, don't practice it and play it a few times and then record yourself afterwards. Like that's nice. If, you, if you're looking to build confidence, there's a time and a place for that. And that can be a useful way to record. However, if you want to find out where things really are and what you need to spend the most time on before your lesson in three days or um, before the performance in a month, then yeah, you want to wake up in the morning or whenever you're able to, to practice, um, do get warmed up, you know, make sure your fingers are warm, your body's warm and so forth, but then play the thing without touching it um, first. It's your all the um, way straight through. It's like your fasting glucose level, right? Like, let's just <laughs> see where you actually are before we like bring all this other stuff in. Yeah. And you know, that's not a fun process. It does get easier over time and it doesn't make you cringe nearly as much. And especially when you start hearing the improvements and you start feeling increasingly comfortable being 
in that sort of uncomfortable place of playing without having touched it, performances feel much more like that and um, much less fraught with uncertainty and so forth when you've been doing that for weeks or months in advance. And so getting used to that and then listening back where, you know, the listening back part's important too. I think we tend to listen back more with kind of a judgmental lens where it's like, was this good or was this bad? Right. And the good and bad, that, that doesn't feel very good for us. And so I think a, an easier lens or not easier, but a more helpful lens might be more of like a diagnostic lens as in, you know, if I'm going to the store and shopping for things, I might do the same with my, my recording where it's like, well, what, you know, what's my list of problems that I'd love to find a solution to. And maybe I'll identify three or five, 10, um, things that, you know, weren't coming across the way that I'd want. And I'd love to find a way to, to make it sound different. And so then you have this list of problems and you can go through it and prioritize and then figure out which ones am I going to spend some time on today? And if I'm just going to be able to have enough time to solve one or two problems, which ones would they be? And then you can go about kind of brainstorming different practice strategies or different solutions for why this is happening. And in that process, of identifying a very specific thing that doesn't work out the way you want, and then finding a solution to it that you can verbally articulate and write down and see there on the page, that's incredibly empowering, you know, as a practicer and as a musician to know that, oh, this didn't just happen randomly, it happened because of this. And if I do this instead, it sounds the way that I want it to. For me, that was a huge part of building confidence on stage as well, because I knew that I had solved problems like permanently. It wasn't just, I did it with this rhythmic pattern 10 times and it suddenly seems to work now. So I think hopefully it'll work on stage too, but no, it's like, oh, this is happening because you know, I did this rhythm pattern, but what that did is it helped me realize that this finger was coming down a little bit too late relative to what my right arm was doing, or I needed to use more bow or a different part of the bow, et cetera. And so, so yeah, I mean, just that one simple shift in how I practice um, made a huge difference in terms of my confidence. And, and I think it's not just me. I think a lot of folks as well, they feel, more enthusiastic about practicing for one. So they, they do it with a little bit more excitement and curiosity and joy, but then performing too, seems more like, yeah, I know I could do this stuff. Let me go and, and do the same. Yeah. And I've got just a little adjunct to add there. Um, if record, if listening back to your record, your recording is truly traumatic for you at first. And I understand that um, you can even sometimes watch yourself without the sound on because also janky playing has a real look to it. Um, and so you know what part it is, the, the music is going in your head, but sometimes actually watching the problem happen and not feeling so attacked by the sound. In fact, sometimes I'll even do it uh, like on, if I feel like I'm running out of bow and I'm so obsessed with listening to my, oh, my intonation was wobbly or, oh, I played that leading tone too high and I'm not paying attention to like what I'm physically doing, but then just watching me tug an extra three inches of bow right before my bow change, that really stands out. And then the other benefit to actually recording and, um, and then watching yourself back, developing the intestinal fortitude to watch yourself. Um, that actually, that really does harken back to the idea of the bulletproof musician. When I record myself, even if it's on my iPhone, only for myself, I am at least 10 or 15% more nervous than I would be just by myself. Just like I am a little bit more nervous playing in front of my students. Now, the nervousness doesn't wreck me. 
but it is a different experience. So I just can't overstate how valuable, especially if you have a little bit of anxiety around playing in front of other people, it's this nice halfway point to record yourself and just kind of get used to that. It shows you that you don't actually die from hearing your own mistake. You can just like have that mistake and learn for, from it, or even just leave it in the rear view mirror, <laughs> just like leave it where it is and you're fine. Um, so, you know, I'm kind of struck by a lot of my colleagues having like radically different reactions to similar things happening in their lives, specifically in either performances or auditions. So like, you know, two people can have a performance that's largely successful and one of them will feel like, yeah, that was great. It wasn't perfect, but like, yeah, yeah. And then somebody else will just be devastated. And I'm just wondering, you know, what we do does require us to be discerning. I think it's one of the main differences with like sports psychology, like you can still fall down, but as long as you score the goal, you're successful. Whereas if I miss every single note, every single note in the big run up to the high note in the Elgar, well, you know, I mean, I will survive as a human being, but that won't be a winning performance for me, for sure. Um, but I feel like perfectionism, we, we turn these things into just like little pointy things to turn against ourselves and stab ourselves in the heart with over and over again. How is it that, how can we offer a way forward to people whose perfectionism ruins the experience or, or seems to preclude any happiness or satisfaction on their instrument, even if they do pretty well. Yeah, no, that's a tough one. Cause I think there are a number of different elements to it that could be involved. I mean, mm. for one musicians, you know, so many of us start so young that our sense of identity is often quite um, tightly intertwined with music and how we play and how we sound and you know, our professional success or failures as it were such that I mean I remember days you know in college and the practice room I couldn't seem to play in tune and like I just didn't didn't even really want to eat like at dinner I just didn't feel like I you know deserved to go to the good dining hall or anything like it's just because you just don't feel like you wonder you kind of have these existential crises and wonder like what am i doing like i can't play in tune like what am i like it just i don't know yeah, after all like, these years why yeah right. why am i not playing in tune yeah right and then especially you know if you're on the audition circuit and taking auditions and you know playing well but not advancing or advancing playing well but then not winning the job and like doing your best and giving up so much and making so many sacrifices and practicing so diligently and doing everything you can think to do and um, and still not, you know, getting the results that you're looking for. And just it can be very confusing and very demoralizing and frustrating. And um, so, you know, there's there's something to be said for, and the, the problem too, though, with this identity is, I mean, I have a friend who was doing extremely well um, in the music world, you know, went to Curtis and, you know, one of these big jobs and you know, at such a young age. But, you know, it's just a really curious person who was interested in other things in the world and went on to start exploring other things and got a lot of pushback from folks um, that she was friends with or who were in music, you know, in the sense that, you know, you need to be more grateful for these opportunities that so few people get, like you're just throwing them away, like, or, or even if, you know, you have a good job and you're doing well, but then you're spending, you know, too much time as it were, 
kayaking or you know training for a triathlon or something then you know people see you as not being serious enough or if you you know god forbid have some other professional thing that you want to itch whether it's real estate or you know something else i mean i think so i think there's some internal pressure but i think there's also sometimes some external pressure in those ways um and then with you know that can tie in with perfectionism as well in terms of depending on you know your family experience or your teachers or um, the environment that you grew up studying in uh, you know one of the things that i've found interesting about perfectionism research more recently that i've started to to read about is is this idea that perfectionism isn't really so much about the high standards that I think we tend to associate with perfectionism, but it's more about this persistent feeling of not being enough. Mm. Um, and so the, the high standards are almost kind of like a shield that can be used to uh, protect oneself from that feeling of not enough. And that, you know, Hey, I have these high standards, so I have to be comparing myself on a different level than anybody, anybody else. But then also, you know, if I can meet these high standards, then maybe I'll be enough you know, to get the approval of, of so-and-so or um, to feel appreciated or feel seen or feel loved by X, Y, and Z. And, and that, of course, you know, that feeling of, of not enoughness, um, unfortunately, doesn't really change no matter how close we get to those um, unreachable sometimes standards that we set for ourselves. What, what I did, um, I've I have perfectionistic tendencies now, but it's not quite so much like this cloak that I bring into everything like I used to. What used to happen to me is I would set this like bananas goal and I would work for it and then I would get it. And I would then say, well, if somebody as crummy as I am can get this, then that goal actually must not have been as discerning as I thought it was. So like we can always find ways to be like, no, no, no we're going to ch- either move the goalposts or change the equation so that we end up feeling not enough, no matter what, like we can make sure that happens. We're awfully good at right. that. I think. Yeah. I mean, cause even if you, I mean, another way of, of kind of perpetuating that same thing is you reach the goal and you don't get the response, you know, enough Facebook likes or whatever reaction you're looking to from, you know, a mentor or teacher or, or somebody around you, people around you. Um, then it's like, Oh, okay. So, even that wasn't enough. Like I need to set the bar even higher. It's just right. kind of spiral to the point where it's just become kind of paralyzed and, um, and demoralized at the end of it because nothing seems to be enough. And then we start worrying that there's something inherently wrong with us that we just don't even see that we're still perfect yet. There's something that people can sniff out that is still lacking in some way. Yeah. Um, so uh, did do you by any chance know of the podcast maintenance phase? I don't. Oh, so I I am not a paid shill, but I might as well be because like anytime any kind of methodology, numbers, research, data, or culture, like I'm like Debbie, listen to maintenance phase. They they're basically um, skewering wellness culture, and they're doing it though through methodology and data, and just kind of looking at. Like their last episode was on Ozempic, the weight loss drug. And they're like, okay, so here's what everybody thinks, but here's actually what the numbers said. And here's the numbers are incredible. And here's why, because actually this data set was from this impossible number of people who do not represent the population as a whole, for instance, stuff like that. Um, And I became super interested in 
performance, like the science of skill. Um, like I think, I think it was Gladwell that first got me. Unfortunately, he suckered me in with his fantastic hair and excellent cadence in writing. Um, but then why am I forgetting his last name? It's called the talent code, Daniel Coyle. Coyle. It is Coyle. Uh-huh. I was going to say it. Um, and I was struck by some of the ideas in there, but then now that I've listened to a year of maintenance phase and I'm starting to kind of probe a little bit in terms of numbers, because Gladwell's whole thing is like looking at novel things, right? Like, so kids who are, you know, Pisces astrology do better in hockey and it's, you know, they think, oh, it's because actually they go to school a little bit earlier and they're the oldest kids. And and there might be something to that, but I think that there's a lot of conflating correlation and causation. And I'm just wondering, um, like specifically, a lot of us got really excited about that 10,000 hours because we're like, finally, the key to getting good. Um, and I guess first, do you agree that the 10,000 hours is probably not the thing, but it represents if you're doing that, that you're probably doing the 97 other things that are required to improve on an instrument. Or do you actually think like, Oh, maybe there's actually something to that figure. I think, uh, my understanding is that Anders Ericsson, who's research that sort of mm-hmm. so-called rule is based off of, um, my understanding is that, 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 the 10,000 hours sort of myth, as it were, became so popular, kind of irked and annoyed him. That, <laughs> That's wasn't great. Really, that wasn't really the point of his research. The point of his research was that he found that, you know, those, and this is, you know, the study, I think that this is based off of like this kind of seminal 1993 study, looking at um, conservatory students at some school in Germany, and um, basically found that, yeah, like the ones who were, you know, better had engaged in more, um, hours of supposedly deliberate practice, but it's based on self-reports. So, you know, there's that. Um, and also, you know, they weren't world-class musicians yet. Like they were, you know, for conservatory students, you know, at that age range, they were doing well. But um, so the real number, I forget what, what the real number might be, but it was more like, you know, 20, 25,000 hours. And again, the, the hours doesn't really matter because it's an average. And there's so many differences. Like we know some students, learn much more quickly than others doesn't mean that their ceiling is different necessarily, but the learning curve can look very different for them. And, you know, when they develop, how they develop, you know, so forth. I mean, I think we can look at our own experience in school and some people who we thought were just going to, you know, be awesome as professionals didn't necessarily pan out that way. And we look at this in sports as well. And then others who just kind of were chugging along and didn't really think about them, you know, are doing tremendously well and doing crazy things. And, so yeah, it's an average for one. The hours isn't really the point. It's more what is this deliberate practice activity that they engaged in? And yeah, it's you know the sort of methodical, thoughtful, analytical, and problem-solving based approach to actually identifying and solving you know technical, musical, mechanical issues. Like That's that it. is what leads to more growth over time than than a not practicing, which doesn't lead anywhere, or b. <laughs> putting in kind of like junk practice hours where you just mindlessly repeat the same thing over and over. And in the moment, it sounds like we're getting better, but in the long span of time, we're not really making incremental um, permanent progress. 
and we get good at what we practice. So if you are, you know, just blowing through something mindlessly, um, you get really good at that. And that feels like the way you should play. But I really like the idea of the problem solving. Yes, we all want to play. And none of us, even us like crazy methodology in the weeds, looking at all this underpinning stuff, the, the end goal is so that you can play. But I think the thing to latch on to is the skill is, do you know how to work? Do you know how to do the work and solve the problems? If you can do that, then the playing actually happens as like a reward almost. It's the byproduct of it. It's like gasoline ended up was the byproduct, the kerosene refining, right? So we just have to get really good at refining this other product that we're not really used to, but I promise you, it will yield the very thing that you are after. Um, but sometimes it's not very sexy to be what I've played for 39 years and I'm still like, today I will work on extensions because <laughs> it's just, it's a problem that I know how to solve. And that problem means 10 minutes every day of just accepting that my extensions are not as great as everybody else's. Um, so with that in mind, are there actually pieces of like kind of common like ideology that have been sort of Gladwellified that like you hear them repeated often, but they're actually not as helpful as people would think they are? Well, I, I think the, this is sort of a nerdy example maybe, but um, you know, the inverted U hypothesis I think is overly, well, so if, if you're listening to this and you have no idea what the inverted U hypothesis is, then maybe I've gone too nerdy. No, <laughs> tell me actually, I maybe I have heard of it, but I've not heard of it by this uh, name. Right. You probably have. Basically, this has been around for like over a hundred years, where it's the idea that you know this inverted U shape of the relationship between anxiety and performance quality. And this is a subject that we could easily get into for like. Oh, hours. okay, but, yes. But basically, the idea is that if you're too calm, performance is suboptimal, and if you're too high in anxiety, then performance is bad. But there's like this middle range where performance is best. And it turns out, I mean, that's something that came out of studying, you know, rats learning how to run mazes. Uh, you know, Yerkes and Dodson were the folks who figured this out, you know, again, over a hundred years ago. It makes sense and it sort of feels like it fits, but the reality is that it's much more nuanced than that. I mean, for one, it turns out everybody has their own unique inverted U curve, basically, where for some people that middle range is actually pretty low. Um, and they need to be relatively calm in order to have their best performances. And then for other folks, that middle part of the curve is quite high, actually. And they might need to be quite excited or quite activated in order to have their best performances. And then the curve itself is not the same uniform U. For some folks, it's really narrow. There's a very specific range where they need to be. In other folks, it's quite broad. And they can be anywhere in, an, in you know, kind of a flexible area. And they have their best performances still. And then it turns out that, you know, a lot of the earlier research used the word anxiety pretty broadly, um, but it turns out there are different components to the anxiety response. You know, there's a physical component or somatic anxiety. And there's also a mental component or a cognitive anxiety. And it seems that those two aspects of anxiety affect performance differently. Uh, there's this model or, or theory called multi dimensional anxiety theory. And, and this is something that came out of research in sport. And basically uh, what they found is that, yeah, if you're looking just at physiological arousal, sure. It seems that that inverted U hypothesis fits pretty well, where 
you know, if you're completely calm and like about to fall asleep, you're not going to have your best performance, whether you're a cellist or, you know, a swimmer or a weightlifter, like that's just not going to be ideal. Um, of course, if you are too high and like kind of bouncing off walls and you're about to explode, then that's not going to be ideal either for most folks. Um, so physically you do want to be kind of in that moderate zone, but mentally speaking, it's, it's a different curve. It's almost like a straight line basically where the less worry and doubt and second guessing, et cetera, that you're engaged in, the better performances are likely to be. Whereas the more of that kind of inner critic and mental chatter and beating yourself up and worrying and all that, that you're doing, um, performances are probably not going to be optimal. And so like, we have these two different goals mentally and physically that, you know, it's still pretty straightforward, but it just results in a different set of strategies that we need to kind of approach. Whereas um, I think typically intuitively too, I think we just think, oh, if I could be calm, then I'll just play better. But as we know from experience, like we've had performances where we were calm and still didn't play that great. And then performances where we were nervous and it went really well, uh, but it was more of like an excited nervous than a like, I'm freaking out and worried, having a panic attack kind of nervous. So yeah, so there's those two elements that kind of create this ideal place to be in and just trying to be calm is, uh, is unfortunately an oversimplification of what needs to happen. Yeah. Anytime we're considering data, right. You just have to look for the nuance in it because it is probably there or the study was flawed if it looks so completely or, or there wasn't enough, <laughs> there wasn't enough, uh, of a sample size. Um, so yeah, I actually think that something students can work on if you do find that you've got like this physical sense of arousal with kind of the circus brain, you know, all kinds of different things. Sometimes I find that students, the real problem is that students will attach a certain significance to the state of physical arousal, as opposed to just saying like, well, yeah, I do feel like a little bit, you know, for me, sometimes I feel like my fingers belong to somebody else right before I play, but like, I've trained myself enough to be like, I, those person's fingers will also play these notes. Um, but, uh, one of the best things I ever did, and I feel like actually Ron Leonard might've, might've done this with me is as I said, you know, I just feel really jumpy. Like, I don't, he's like, do you feel bad? I'm like, no, I just feel like, you know, I'm a type A, I'm kind of an uptight person anyway. And he's like, well, then it's, it's not significant. This is in your brand. This is kind of who you are. So as long as you're not thinking that I'm jumpy and this is bad, just go out there and have the time of your life. You've practiced enough. It, it'll be fine. And by and large, it was. So just kind of being aware of the significance you're attaching to certain things just even the awareness of it, I think can be a tool to help releasing some of it. So we're kind of wrapping up here and I'm sure everybody's going to want a whole bunch more of you and the kind of discussions that you have. So obviously we've got just the, the blog that continues to be updated and there is a, just a tre treasure trove, like a mountain of excellent um, writing. You said you've got a podcast um, I bet you're a lot better at releasing things than I am. Mine's every month or four months or three weeks, just who knows. Um, how often do you put out your podcast? So both with the podcast and the blog, uh, there's something that comes out weekly. Um, Holy smokes. The, <laughs> Making podcast, us look bad, Noah. <laughs> right. Well, part of it's, it's a little bit easy because, you know, three times out of four, it's just a, um, you know, like a short thousand word um, 
kind of rundown on a particular study that I think is useful for musicians. One one time out of four, it's it's more of a traditional interview type of thing with somebody, and that takes a little bit more time. But but yeah, that's how I make it easier to to get out on a weekly basis. All right, I'm taking notes. Um, and then um, you said that you're offering uh, coachings. Kind of what is involved in that if somebody wanted to either contact you or um, take, you know, a course from you or one of your kind of affiliated people? Yeah. So there's really two options. Um, You know, it was a long time ago, actually, I started this maybe 2011 or 2012. I started um, offering this online course. It's basically modeled after after the semester-long classes that I teach at Juilliard and, and Cleveland. And it's basically structured around the the regular rhythm that I think we're all accustomed to of having one lesson a week and then we practice stuff and then we check in again the next week. And so, you know, there's a variety of different techniques and strategies and skills and so forth spread across a variety of skill areas like confidence building or, you know, managing nerves and practicing effectively and getting into the zone and so forth. And so you, you know, watch a video or two and you take one of those techniques or strategies or concepts and then you spend a week seeing if you can integrate that into your practice and you record a little bit at the beginning of the week, record a little bit at the end of the week, and then see what changes and um, see how that's going. And then if it seems to be working well, maybe you continue with it um, or something else might catch your fancy the next week and you move on to that. And so basically it's a way to, to gradually start integrating a lot of this into your regular weekly practice. Um, and the live course is more for folks who know that if they were on their own, it just wouldn't get done. <laughs> so basically it's, which is, I think most of us a lot of the time. So, you know, the idea is to um, gather a bunch of people together into a cohort. And usually there's around a hundred or so in the cohort. And um, we'll go through a four week um, series of classes, you know, once a week, cover a variety of things in one area. And then for homework, you'll make a before recording, try out the skill for a few days, make an after recording, um, and they kind of compare notes amongst the cohort in the forum and, and that sort of public accountability and just a kind of feel and vibe of, it's like, oh, it's not just me doing this, but there are a bunch of other people who are doing it together, you know, different levels, different instruments. There are folks who play accordion and bagpipes and jazz and fiddle and of course the whole gamut of classical instruments um, as well and educators. So, so it's, it's, I mean, I, I'm grateful for being able to do this. It's one of the funnest things I think I get to do because you see these people being so incredibly like supportive of each other and encouraging. And um, yeah, so so if studying this stuff by yourself sounds cool, um, but you know that you're the type of person that also enjoys being in a group, the, the live class can really help with that. Um, so yeah, those are the, the two basic options at this point. All right, and I'm going to link to all of that in the show notes, so don't you guys worry about writing any of it down. Um, I really appreciate you for just doing this work and then sharing it, right, and then being so public. And even though classes and everything are behind a paywall, there's a million words <laughs> probably <laughs> that um, that are a great starting point. And um, I'm just really... I'm just glad that the Bulletproof Musician is around on the internet. It is heartening and it's a kind of an antidote to a lot of the culture we get steeped in, in especially classical music. So thank you. And thank you for taking the time. Yeah. Thanks for having me.